The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a member of the Society of St. Pius V. He's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. Better. Thanks to, your, thanks to your prayers. Sure. How are you doing there? Not too bad, Father. Good. It's good to uh, have you back from Washington, D.C., where you just attended the, uh, the annual pro-life march there. Do you have any, uh, any reflections on that march, Father, this year? Well, it was special insofar as uh, the president, uh, President Donald Trump, addressed the march and uh, <clears throat> took part in it in that significant way that he spoke to the hundreds of thousands. I, I would, I would say there. If if one could go by appearances, that you're going to have to say that there's a million people anyway, a million people there. It was enormous. I had never seen anything quite so well populated. In all the years I've been going to the March for Life, as you know, Tom, uh, we go when I think there's there's only a, uh, there have only been a couple of times <clears throat> when, due to blizzard conditions, we were unable to go and have the mass in Washington D.C. But we otherwise are there with a morning mass, a traditional mass, of course, and uh, <clears throat> we offer that mass for the. Pilgrims who come down from New York by bus and our own students who bus in from uh, Cincinnati and other traditional Catholics who come in from other areas. I would say that we probably had, uh, I would guess, 130 uh, souls there this time. Um, and um, our students sang and served the Mass and uh, then they, they wanted to go immediately to the uh, to the mall, the National Mall, they wanted to hear President Trump speak. And they did arrive there uh, in time to hear, you know, the last, probably the last half of his comments. <clears throat> um, his comments were very uh, forceful, pro-life, uh, unambiguous, uh, as one would expect, uh, uh, somewhat self-promoting. There was certainly self-promotion involved there. Um, but the message, nonetheless, was that uh, uh, he himself is pro-life, and we can count on him uh, being pro-life in the decisions that he makes. Um, now, of course, you know, we think as Catholics, obviously, and others say that they're pro-life, but they don't necessarily mean it the same way we do. I mean, we, we understand that in a very certain, specific Catholic way, okay? And um, so we pray for him, uh, that he will follow through and receive the grace to, uh, uh, the grace of faith, the grace of faith uh, uh, to, to believe as, as Catholics believe clearly, and in that sense be pro-life as we understand it to be, as we know it to be. Um, we believe the life of the soul is what it is really a matter of being pro-life. And uh, so the life of the body is God-given, the life of the soul, certainly. 
the supernatural life of the soul is ultimately that that everlasting life is what what we are created for. We understand being pro-life in all of those senses. Um, but uh, President Trump has done a goodly number of things that really have served well the pro-life cause. Uh, so in that regard, he's kept his word, and uh, perhaps even more than kept his word, insofar as he's done more than we might have expected him to do. That is pro-life. It is easy to see why the people who are pro-abortion, pro-death, and pro-choice, which is just a euphemism for poor abortion and pro-death, it's easy to see why they actually have a certain seething hatred of him. Um, but uh, the fact is, he, he apparently um, is not intimidated by that in any way. Uh, we, we have to continue praying for him. So to that extent, I think the pro-life uh, march, the March for Life, was very special this time. Uh, another reason why I think it was uh, an improvement over the past, you know, you, you have groups, uh, most of them Novus Ordo Catholic by far. Uh, you have some Orthodox and you have uh, uh, Greek Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox. You have some Orthodox Jews too. You have a variety of, of groups, but I'd say, I don't know, 90, 95% of those are marching there attached to some sort of a Novus Ordo parish somewhere. And um, they're making a lot of noise, shouting, give me an L, give me an I, give me an F, give me an E, what have you got, life. And of course, we know that shouting, give me an L, an I, an F, and an E doesn't give you life. We know that. And we don't go there to shout slogans. We don't go there to carry signs with catchy sayings. <clears throat> we go there to pray. And hopefully be a little bit of leaven in that crowd. We notice uh, each year more and more people are joining us in those prayers. <clears throat> this year we had two groups. Uh, the group from New York and the group from Cincinnati were separated. Uh, well, the, as I say, the, the Cincinnati group went to, went to the mall. The New York group then arrived to join the march. And uh, it was stalled for quite a while. It didn't move. Uh, so finally we entered, we prayed the rosary. Uh, we let the, the, the beginning of the march go by and then we, we joined them and we prayed the rosary, 15 decades of the rosary. And our students from Cincinnati and their chaperones came up, they were somewhat behind us in the march, but they were also praying the rosary. And they were saying that people were joining them and praying the rosary. Uh, one thing we noticed, um, we brought the Baltimore processional cross this year. This is a, a processional cross that was actually given by the bishops of the United States to uh, the Archbishop of Baltimore back at, um, in the 1800s. In one of the councils of Baltimore, the Council of Baltimore that dedicated the, uh, our nation to the Immaculate Conception of Our Lady and made Our Lady's Immaculate Conception the patronal fe feast uh, the patronal mystery of our country, right? A Mary, Mary immaculately conceived. It's a patron of, of this country, patroness of this country. And that cross commemorates that dedication. So it was very uh, significant to, to us, being from Immaculate Conception Church and Immaculate Conception Academy, to be carrying that great, beautiful, enormous cross. <clears throat> and even before the march started, as the students were standing there, uh, waiting to, to begin the march, there was an immense throng of people 
people were coming up and admiring that cross. We're asking to know more about it and getting the story about it. And uh, I'm glad to say our students were able to explain to them the significance of that particular processional cross. There are pictures of it online at the march. And, uh, but as I say, more and more people were not only joining us in the rosary, but more and more evidence, the crucifix. The crucifixes being carried also indicated a certain awareness, more so in the past, of the significance, the religious significance, the faith significance of why, why people are coming there. But um, it's still not what it needs to be to turn this terrible evil away and to deliver our nation from this terrible evil. It's not what it needs to be. And uh, somebody pointed out, and uh, pointed out, interestingly enough, I, I think accurately, that uh, there was a so-called woman's march there, uh, which is pro-abortion and all the other evils that, that attend it. But that there were some pro-lifers who actually confronted the woman's march and got in front of it and uh, sort of, uh, I guess, stole the, the cameras, right? Um, by, uh, you know, carrying pro-life signs directly in front of the Women's March. But somebody pointed out that the way the women were dressed, the young women who, uh, in a sense, co-opt the Women's March for the pro-life cause, um, there was no difference. That they were dressed the same way, pretty much walking the same way, acting the same way, and were it not for the signs they were carrying, they were indistinguishable from another, one another. And that's a very good point, I think, especially in terms of the dress. Um, because you get your young people, often Catholic young people, often traditional Catholic young people, going to such events, and they're dressed virtually like everyone else. Uh, the women, the girls, right, in uh, pants, uh, in jeans, uh, even tight jeans, right? Not baggy clothing, but uh, that conceal the figure, but that, that accentuate the figure. And, uh, you know, in terms of dress, not only could they not distinguish them in what they're wearing from the other pro-lifers there, that they couldn't necessarily distinguish them in what they're wearing from the, from the women's marchers there. They're all wearing the same thing. Um, this is the modern-day fashion, of course. It is unisex, right? Put the women in pants. That's what the communists did, what the socialists did, um, wherever they took over, right? They, they want to break down the distinction between male and female, finally, between men and women, mom and dad. And um, the, uh, the damage is, is there. You know, some of the girls I know would say, and young women, because they're, you know, I think of some of the girls I'd consider to be, you know, maybe 16 and younger, although they'd like them also to be young ladies, clearly. But above 16, I would like to think of them absolutely as young ladies. And uh, they might say, well, you know, you're out in the elements, it's windy, and that's true. It can be very windy, and it can be very cold, right? And I would say, yes, in the wind, skirts can be a problem, no doubt about it. Uh, unless they're long enough. Um, but one can also wear modest skirts and leggings underneath them or something to fight the cold, you know. And of all times and places when we should, obviously in divine worship, we should be dressed appropriately. 
Um, but there at the March for Life, if we recognize the religious significance and the spiritual significance, uh, and we're there for the right things, that is the spiritual significance, mm -hmm. as a kind of uh, uh, battle against the prince, you know, princes of darkness and, and so on, then we should dress modestly. We should go out of our way to dress modestly and set an example. And um, I'd, I'd like to see more and more of our traditional Catholic young ladies uh, take that bold step and distinguish themselves from the crowd in that way and distinguish themselves in the right way as traditional Catholics in their, in their modesty, in dress. Um, there are, are, they can dress very elegantly and uh, even on, on occasions like that. Mm -hmm but in a very feminine way. And uh, that is true feminism. So I would, I would hope that that message will come across more and more also as time goes on. Uh, so many uh, young ladies today, especially in the Novus Ordo, the New Order, have lost all sense of modesty, it seems. And nothing is expected of them. And if they were addressed modestly and uh, appropriately, you know, in a fe feminine way, uh, they might even be subject to ridicule. But I would hope that our traditional Catholic young ladies have the gumption, the courage, and the love for our Lord to be uh, willing to do that. You know, the, here the president spoke to the march. And here is a man who is uh, the object of so much ridicule, of so much vindictive, um, malicious talk, uh, accused of all kinds of things and he just has like a, a face of, of, of flint or uh, you know granite that it does nothing faces him and uh, I think we have something to learn from that to be totally unfazed by the the onslaughts of evil and malice and so on to be completely uh, unaffected by it in the sense that we're not intimidated by that at all. If there's one one thing I think uh, I can think of that I wish we could learn from him, Donald J. Trump, now he might do it out of ego for all I know. I mean, I'm not saying he's doing it out of some supernatural virtue. But I'm saying we should be doing what he is doing, we should be doing out of supernatural virtue. That we are going to live as befits Catholics regardless of what anybody says and be absolutely unfazed by any criticisms, by any ridicules or anything. And this has to do with not only uh, how we conduct ourselves in private, also in public. It has to do with not only what we say, it has to do with how we dress. And um, that's, that's one thing I'd really, really want to see changed. That's one of, one of two things right at the top, right at the bat. I would like to see more and more prayer there. I mean, I wish that we could get all of those people, every single one of them praying the rosary together. That would be my ultimate goal, to have them all praying together. What a force that would be. And, uh, but also, uh, I would like to see all of the ladies there dressed as ladies, dressed modestly, uh, even if it's not convenient, and even if it's not popular. I'd like to see them set that example. Sure.
Father, I wanted to return for a moment to President Trump's remarks. Um, they, they seem to be very good, uh, very pro-life, like you said. But uh, there was one comment in particular that was receiving some attention. We actually received an email or two about it. And that was uh, the, this quote where he said that human life, perhaps he even said that every human life is divine. And some of our, our viewers were concerned that perhaps that is uh, kind of an espousal of Gnosticism. What would you say to that? Uh, well, coming from Donald Trump, I don't think it's a theological statement. I don't think he really means every human life is divine life. I think the context, the context of his uh, talk is very clear that he believes that God is the creator of every human life. He doesn't mean to say that every human being is God. Okay? He doesn't even, even, he doesn't mean to say that every human being has even the divine life of grace. I don't know that Donald Trump even thinks in those terms. It was an expression that was clearly in context meant to say that every uh, human life has um, the, the, uh, the divine blessing in, in the sense of having um, the, um, is given by God. It is, it is bestowed by God. It is owed to God. <laughs> And uh, we say in our founding documents that uh, uh, we are uh, granted by God, we're endowed by God with a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I, I think he's speaking in those terms. Okay. But I mean, to interpret what he says, strictly speaking in a Catholic theological way, I think is unfair to him, because he's, he doesn't mean it that way, I'm sure. Okay. Um, if you were to ask him, do you mean every human being is God? He would say, like, say no. <laughs> so uh, every human being is a divine being. Insofar as he would understand what you're saying, I think he would very clearly say no. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, well, Father, if you're up for it, I'd like to get into <coughs> some emails uh, from our email inbox. There's um, <clears throat> one here that we've had for a while that I'd, I'd like to begin with regarding Bishop Mendez. Uh, this, this viewer says that I've heard a lot about Bishop Mendez from the likes of Father Chicada and Stephen Heiner, but I have never heard Father Jenkins' side of the story. Father Chicada, for instance, mentions the secrecy of Bishop Kelly's consecration as an example of hypocrisy. They obviously are making the comparison with Archbishop Took. There were also reports that Bishop Mendez might have lacked the mental capacity to go through with the ordinations and consecrations, and also that he was a scandalous Novus Ordo bishop. I'd like to hear Father Jenkins' side of the story. Uh, that is all uh, false. Okay. What, what is the first thing he says? Uh, Father Chicada mentions the secrecy of Bishop Kelly's consecration as an example of hypocrisy. Okay. Well, Bishop's Kelly, Bishop Kelly's consecration took place in Bishop Mendez's own home chapel, where he had an altar set up facing the wall with the traditional Catholic, the traditional Roman rite of Mass in the Missal and the altar cards, and where he offered the traditional Mass when he was physically able each day, and uh, it took place in his home. He had just recovered from double pneumonia. I had received a phone call uh, that, Archbishop, that, that Bishop Mendez was in the intensive care unit at a hospital near his home with double pneumonia, and that he was gravely ill. So I flew there and anointed him and uh, he began to recover, and within a few days, actually, he was on his feet again. When I arrived, he was completely uh, 
it was not responsive, right? It was on tubes and wires and medication and so on. And uh, he was able to go home in, uh, uh, I think, several days after that arrival, within, within the week anyway. And it was within the next uh, two weeks that he actually consecrated Bishop Kelly there in that home chapel. And um, <clears throat> some would say that his recovery was miraculous. Uh, oddly enough, I myself was confronted by his pulmonary care specialist, who was a Japanese gentleman, a very no-nonsense sort of doctor, uh, one might say humorless, a very, very serious individual, who walked up to me one day in the intensive care unit as I was leaving Bishop Mendes' bedside. And this doctor, I won't mention his name, but he, he said to me, he stood right in front of me, and he said, I don't know what it is you have in that little black case you're carrying, but whatever it is, keep using it. It brought your bishop back from the edge of death. And I had, I had seen so many wonderful things happen with the sacrament of extramunction, so many remarkable right, recoveries, that I smiled at him, right? But he took that as I, that I was not taking him seriously. And so he said to me, I'm not kidding, I'm serious. And he turned and walked away. So I thought, well, evidently he really means this. He's quite serious about this. Uh, he thought that Bishop Mendez was, was dying. He thought he should have died, but for the fact he attributed his recovery to what he didn't know, and that is the holy oils, the sacrament of extremunction. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was a pretty powerful testimony from this doctor who might not even be a Christian. He was absolutely definite about it, but that's what saved Bishop Mendez. And so it was just a couple of days after that that the doctor, in fact, the same doctor did not want to release Bishop Mendez to go home because he said, no, he can't. He's, it's too soon after his illness. And finally, um, <clears throat> Bishop Mendez insisted, I am strong enough. I, I can go home. And the doctor said, if you can use that walker and walk from that wall to the other end of the room, uh, I'll let you go. Bishop Mendez picked up the walker and carried it to the other end of the room. So the doctor said, okay, you can go home. And um, so um, it was shortly, as soon as Bishop Mendez, even before he got out of the hospital, Bishop Mendez was talking to me about the upcoming consecration. He was very much aware of it. In fact, he had, had originally proposed consecrating me also. And there in the hospital, he asked me uh, what I thought of that. He hadn't asked me before. This was the first time he'd asked me asked me about that, and I said to him, Bishop Mendez, I appreciate your thoughtfulness and your kindness and your confidence, but I do not think I'm really prepared for that. And he said, all right. And that was the last he brought it up. He never mentioned it to me again. He was very clear. The, the, my point is, his mind was very clear. And um, when he returned home, and we proceeded with the consecrations, his mind was very clear. We spent a good bit of time with him, uh, and there was no doubt that his mind was crystal clear on this. What about the secrecy of the, the consecration? Though? Well, well, again, I mean, the, the fact is his health was still somewhat precarious. I mean, he'd just gotten out of the hospital where he was in intensive care where the, his own doctors expected him to die. And it took place in his own private home, in his own chapel. It wasn't done in secret. There were six priests there. 
the Society of St. Pius V priests were there. That's not secret. That is not secret. Uh, secret is when Archbishop Took tells everyone else to leave the room, as he did with the consecration of Garde Laurier, insists that everyone else leave the room and leave only two men behind who are laymen who do not know what is the matter in the form necessary to make a, a, man, a priest a bishop. They did not know this, and they couldn't testify to it, to it later. No one ever explained it to them. That's private. That's secret. That's more than private. There's a big difference between private and secret, okay? Secret is when you tell everyone else to leave and have only two people stay behind who don't even know what makes what is necessary to make a, a consecration valid, okay? That's secret. But with Bishop Mendez, it was done in his own chapel, his home chapel. There were six priests, I was one of them, attending, Father Mrachia was another, we were assisting Bishop Mendez there at his altar, and uh, others were present there, and we all witnessed this event. That's not, that's not secret. Private, yes, secret, no. Yeah. We can testify to what we saw, and we knew what was necessary for validity. Mm -hmm. And we can swear to the fact that this was done. What and about, we did, actually. What about this, so. this, this final point, then, that uh, Bishop Mendez was a Novus Ordo bishop? I, I've heard that, uh, that charge on, on several occasions. How do you answer that? Well, I mean, all of the bishops that came in after the Novus Ordo, you could say they were all Novus Ordo bishops. I mean, they'd all said the Novus Ordo Mass at one time or another, right? They, they went along with the changes up to a certain point, clearly. And, uh, but when he says Bishop, no, Bishop Mendez was a Novus Ordo bishop, Again, what does he mean by that? I mean, all of the traditional priests, uh, you might say, that we know of, even the most staunch of staunch traditional priests, uh, back in those days, back in the 1970s and 80s, who had been ordained before Vatican II, they all went along to a certain, a certain point with the Novus Ordo. You could say they were all involved in the Novus Ordo. Father Fenton, you know, it's hard to think of a priest who was more hard-lined than Father Francis Fenton. But he had, he'd gone ahead, he'd said the new Mass, right? And, uh, but he realized how bad it is. By the grace of God, he came to understand how evil it was, he rejected it, right? I mean, most of the priests back then that, that did, you know. Bishop Mendez was consecrated in, uh, in 1960. And, um, he was actually assigned as a newly consecrated bishop to create a new diocese, which is very unusual, in the very center of uh, Puerto Rico, the diocese of uh, Arecibo. And he did. And um, he sent his seminarians, because he had no seminary built yet, to seminaries in the States, and then went and visited them, and he was horrified by what he saw. And he pulled them out of those seminaries when he saw what they were doing there. Um, he was a man who definitely had the faith, there's no doubt about it. I don't think anybody can question the fact that he had the Catholic faith. And, um, you know, he, I think he went through the same process that virtually everybody else went through, in, who were swept up in the Novus Order when the changes and came to the point where they said, no, this is not right, I will not do this. But they had all traveled a certain way down that road before they saw the, the evil of where it was leading, you know. Um, Bishop Mendoz, probably very much like the rest of them, um, <clears throat> was hoping that good would come from this. 
Maybe he saw some what he thought was good points initially, but there's no doubt about it that he came to realize this was wrong, that it was all wrong. Um, you know, we, we tend to uh, assign to others a knowledge that they, they must have had because we knew. I mean, I read the Ottaviani Intervention when I was very young. Back in 1969, you know, the Ottaviani uh, Intervention, you know, uh, blasted the new Mass and theologically and liturgically dismantled the new Mass and told how evil it was. Well, uh, here we are in, in uh, you know, 19, 1982, 83. Here we are, um, and, and even going into the 1990s, I mean, you know, we, we, we're visiting Bishop Mendez, we see him. Well, actually, at one point, when he came out to visit us in Cincinnati, he got into the automobile and found a copy sitting there on the seat, a copy of the Atari Intervention, Ottaviani Intervention. Now, this was uh, 20 years or so or more after it appeared. Well, he picked it up and he began reading it. And as he was reading it, he was saying, I never saw this before. He said, this is really good. This is really good. It was, you know, the Ottaviani Intervention, Every traditional Catholic, every Catholic person in the world, especially the Novus Ordo people, need to read the Ottaviani Intervention, Critique of the New Mass when it came out. Bishop Mendes picked it up. It was the first time he'd seen it. Up until then, he'd just seen that there were things that were wrong. But here it was spelled out for him. And uh, this was before he consecrated Bishop Kelly, a bishop. And he was very impressed by that. The first he saw it. So we just can't assume that everybody must have known right from the get-go, just because we did. Uh, you know, we're very blessed to have that information provided for us. And as soon as that information was provided providentially for Bishop Mendez, I mean, if you would have asked me, um, did Bishop Mendez, was he aware of the autophagy intervention? I would, I would have said, well, of course, you know, of course, because mm -hmm. all traditional Catholics are very much aware of the autophagy intervention, right? When um, Archbishop Lefebvre was writing the Vatican in support of Archbishop Lefebvre and, um, and his efforts to, you know, for the traditional faith and traditional mass and defending him to Paul VI, uh, you know, you would think, well, Bishop Mendez certainly had the background necessary uh, to stand up, you know, against the Novus Ordo. I'd never dreamed that he had never seen it before. But it impressed me that it impressed him so much when he did see it. Mm -hmm. It's almost as though this is what I believe, this is what I've seen all along here. And here it is expressed here. And uh, he found it more than intriguing and enlightening. I think he found it kind of uh, ratifying all that he himself had, had judged of the Novus Ordo all that time. So people have to uh, not be so... Um, harsh necessarily in their judgment, but I would call unjust. I think it's unjust mm. to just say, oh, he's an episode bishop. Uh, even though he did what he did, he, yeah, he came back, he was offering the traditional mass, okay, fine. And yes, he consecrated a traditional bishop, even, even saying beforehand, I know they'll excommunicate me for this, but he said, I'll laugh at them from heaven, because he knew he was doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. And just to dismiss all of that and say, well, you know, that doesn't count because 
As far as I'm concerned, he's an overthrow bishop. The only reason they're, the only reason they're attacking uh, Bishop Mendez in this way is because um, we do, will not have any, we will not be in communion with Archbishop Took because we reject Archbishop Took and what he did. They can't defend Archbishop Took. What he did is a matter of public record. They can't deny the th evil things that he did, and they were wrong. All they can do is attack everybody else, to try to say, well, okay, Archbishop Took did these very, very bad things. We admit that. We can't deny it. But so did everybody else. And that means they have to attack Archbishop Lefebvre. They have to attack Bishop Mendez to say, well, you know, they're no better, right, than Archbishop Took was. And that is a very bad way to make your case. That's how Democrats think. That's the kind of case that Democrats make. And uh, it's not worthy of traditional Catholics to try to make cases like that. And when I hear these accusations, and by the way, I thank this gentleman for writing in. And he says, very honestly, I've heard the other side of the story, but I haven't heard Brother Jenkins' side of the story. I appreciate that man's honesty and integrity and in saying, well, you know, there's another side of the story. I need to hear that, too. Mm -hmm. And there definitely is another side to this story. <laughs> I was present when, um, uh, when uh, Bishop Mendez ordained Father Baumberger and Father Greenwell. I was at his right, Bishop Mendez's right hand when he did that. I was present and at Bishop Mendez's right hand when he uh, consecrated Bishop Kelly as well. And I consider them both graces, and I'm grateful to God for that. And uh, I, I personally did not come all this way as a traditional Catholic through the saga of these Nova Service seminaries and all the rest in order to compromise the faith by sort of turning a blind eye to something that was wrong. I reject the Took bishops for that reason, but I, I, I accept the ordinations and the consecration done by Bishop Mendez for the same reason, for the, because of the integrity of the faith. That's what I intend to. And that's what I was, why I was willing to, to you know, swear to the truth of what I'd witnessed with regard to the ordinations and with regard to the consecration mm -hmm. of Bishop Keller. Okay, that's great. Uh, well, then let's try and get to another email. Father, it's from uh, a viewer who says, I recently left the SSPX and now attend an older St. Evacontus priest chapel. He celebrates the pre-1955 liturgy, as I know the Society of St. Pius V does. So can Father talk about the celebrations that were suppressed in the later Missal, like St. John at the Latin Gate, or the discovery of the body of St. Stephen? Why did the modernists suppress these and many other octaves and vigils? Well, the modernists suppressed these things not only because they are traditional, but they suppressed them to cast <clears throat> doubt upon what is traditional. Why would they withdraw the feast day of St. Christopher, for example? or St. Philomena, right? Because they want to say, well, this information is really not reliable. And in doing that, in undermining these feast days, they are actually drawing into doubt all of the, whatever is based on belief, which is, which is rooted in Catholic tradition. Um, this is typical modernist procedure, by the way. Um, they, they want more proof for what we as Catholics believe uh, in terms of documentary evidence than you'd need for most anything else that you accept, even on the secular worldly level. 
Because as far as they're concerned, if, if our basis of belief in these things is Catholic tradition, they say, no, that's, that's not sufficient. That is highly suspect. So when they change these feasts, um, that, that's the message they're sending. They want to call into question what we believe on the basis of Catholic tradition. And, um, you know, you mentioned the octaves and so on. Again, this is very, these are very, very rooted in, in, uh, in Catholic liturgy. The Catholic, and they, they want to break down the things that are time-honored, immemorial traditions in the liturgy to show that they can basically change anything. If we can change this, we can change anything. Recently, we had the Feast of St. Agnes, okay? And then eight days later, the eighth day later, we had a secondary Feast of St. Agnes commemorated. And that shows that there was an octave of St. Agnes going back to the earliest, earliest days of the Church, actually. Okay? And um, the traditional liturgy at least kept that. But they want to just annihilate virtually all of these octaves because of what they represent. And what they represent, really, to the modernists, they represent the practice of Catholic tradition, which we are trying to undermine, which we are trying to call into question by instilling in the, in the minds of Catholic people a doubt about whether this is really accurate or not and reliable, mm -hmm. meaning whether it's even true. Um, so they, um, they, they've done a very good job of it. In the, in the, even in the conservative Novus Ordo people, they have sowed the seeds of doubt of these people in Catholic tradition. Mm -hmm. All right, uh, this next one's interesting email, Father. Uh, it says, regarding celiac disease, does it cause death if one with celiac receives the Eucharist, which is made with wheat? Surely, if we truly believe that the bread is now the body, blood, soul, and divinity, of our Lord, how can we possibly fear that consuming the host that our Lord will allow us to drop dead? I know of two people, one who only receives the wine and another who consumes specially made hosts. Is it a lack of faith or am I unfairly judging these people? Well, I think it's uh, perhaps a matter of knowledge, and I don't claim to have the greatest knowledge, but I, I understand, my understanding of celiac disease is it has to do with the gluten in the, uh, in the, in the wheat, right? And the, the gluten has, has a devastating effect on the uh, cilia in the intestines, right? And I know people, I guess we all know someone who is affected so adversely by this. We have a student in one of our schools, in fact, a young lady who is so adversely affected by this that if she ingests this uh, gluten, uh, and she doesn't have to take a lot of it, even, even trace um, elements of it, uh, can reduce her to uh, writhing in pain on the floor. She's just in such terrible pain, you know, gastrointestinal pain. can be very serious. And so um, it's a serious thing. When we consecrate the body and blood of Christ by affecting the transubstantiation through the power of our Lord, and he becomes truly present there, I won't say truly in the bread and in the wine, because the bread and wine are gone. Okay, only the accidents remain. What we can see, what we can feel, what we can taste. The host doesn't taste any differently after it's consecrated than it did before. It doesn't feel any different, right? It doesn't weigh any different, right? Anything you can measure about the host does not change. 
even the chemical properties, as it were, we still would consider accidents, not the substance, okay? And so it will still affect the body in this way, right? And, uh, I mean, God allows that to happen. You know, this is a mystery of faith here. Uh, so he doesn't change that. So you can actually, let's say, chemically analyze the host after consecration and see, oh, this is how he's been consecrated because we see some physical changes in here that are the result of consecration and transubstantiation. It doesn't happen that way, right? Otherwise, I mean, if you could do that, it wouldn't be the mystery of faith anymore. It requires faith to believe that our Lord is really present there. He doesn't change even the chemical, comp- the outward chemical composition of the thing insofar as we can detect it and, and uh, analyze it. So the effect on the body is what it is. And it can be very painful. No, will someone drop dead if they receive the host? Not that I know of. I never heard of a case of celiac disease that was that severe than receiving a, uh, even a pr- piece of regular bread that one would drop dead from it. But it can cause enormous pain and suffering and be very debilitating toward a person. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, our Lord, in his wisdom, gave us the twofold consecration. And the twofold consecration of his body and his blood shows forth his death, as St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, until he comes, meaning the sacrifice will remain until the second coming of Christ, even though we know Toward the end of the world, under the Antichrist, the, the true priests will be hounded, and the sacrifice, well, is marked for death. They're trying to destroy the sacrifice of Christ's death, uh, the sacrificial death of Christ offered in the Mass. And so um, we know that our Lord gave us the two species, as it were, of the body and the blood, and he did so also uh, so that we can use that. You know what? You know what I would recommend. I would actually recommend that our writer here uh, go back and read um, "Quam Singulari." Now you can get it in English. I'm not even sure what it's entitled in English, but it's a 1910 um, document from the uh, Congregation of Rites, I believe it is, under Saint Pius the Tenth talking about daily Holy Communion, frequent and daily Holy Communion. We could even, uh, if, if this writer wants to contact us, I, I'd be glad to get a copy to her in English, not in Latin, in English, so she can see what's, what under St. Pius, by the way, St. Pius X personally approved the document before it was released, before it was promulgated. So it has St. Pius X's personal uh, endorsement, okay, what is said there about the practice of the church giving of from the chalice even to little children in the old days. Something that many of our traditional Catholics are not even aware of necessarily, but they would find that this is a traditional practice. St. Pius X himself makes that point very strongly in urging the reception of frequent and even daily Holy Communion. So I think that might be enlightening to uh, this, uh, this good soul who's inquiring about this, to know that this is not a, an, that extraordinary a practice for a Catholic, a, a traditional Catholics, that it is a traditional practice. Um, so, no, I don't think it's a matter really of someone just saying, well, look, 
if I go up and receive the host, like everyone else does, I'm just going to have to deal with the, the pain for the next you know, half a day of being totally debilitated, bedridden, and excruciating you know, pain because of that. Uh, God says we don't have to go seeking that kind of pain, uh, especially if you're a child and you have to be a student and you have to go to school and do other things for your family. Um, you have responsibilities, even as a child, to be a good son and a good daughter. And, and uh, if that were an adult, then who would, be, who would be incapacitated by this? All the more reason, too, because of the duties and responsibilities they have. If the alternative is there, provided by our Lord to receive a, a few drops of the precious blood from a separate chalice at the Mass, then take that as, as a God-given opportunity and an answer to your need at that time. But don't, don't uh, think that somebody is being a coward or having a lack of faith mm -hmm. for choosing that option and that alternative. Again, that document uh, that came out in 1910 under Pius X, uh, I think explains it very well. Okay. Father, I'd like to try and get through, I think maybe just two more emails really quickly, if we could. Uh, this first one, says, I heard from a 33-degree Freemason that the Coptic Orthodox Church is the oldest Christian church in the world. Could you confirm or deny this? I deny it. Okay. I mean, Christ died on Calvary near Jerusalem. Uh, St. James himself was the, was the bishop of Jerusalem. He died a martyr's death. He was the first of the apostles to die the martyr's death. And it was there that the apostles uh, first spread the faith on Pentecost Sunday. So how could the Coptic church be the oldest Christian church in the world, if he's talking about not a building but the community of Christian people, when it started in Jerusalem and you had all of these converts who were there in the streets of Jerusalem on Pentecost Sunday itself? Now, you, admittedly, there were many from other parts of the, you know, the, the uh, the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2, explains they were from all over the empire, okay? But that's where it started. <clears throat> that's where the first conversions took place. Yeah. And that's where the apostles first did their work and their preaching in Jerusalem. So manifestly, that cannot be true, what this 33rd degree Mason is saying. Okay. is patently false. All right. Uh, the next one uh, says, I have a question about the calling of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. The text makes it fairly clear that God spoke to Abraham personally and that the revelation was external. That is, he received it through the senses. However, I recently heard someone suggest that Abraham led a spiritual life prior to his calling and he, quote, contemplated to the point of receiving God's message internally. Am I right in assuming that this is a modernist reinterpretation of the passage? And what are your suggestions on how to counteract such claims? Well, I had never heard that interpretation before. Uh, Abraham was from Ur of the Chaldeans, as I recall. And uh, um, I don't ever recall that he was having some kind of, what, mystical experiences before his calling as Abraham and God's revelation to him. So I don't know where they're getting that. He says the interpretation of the passage what, what passage is he referring to exactly? He doesn't give a specific, he just says Genesis chapter 12, not, okay. not specific. Okay. I guess they'd have to read that again to know mm -hmm. how they're interpreting that. 
Yeah. I mean, we have the scriptures there. We could look that up right now and try to determine. I wish it was a little more specific in what passage. Uh, generally, I mean, we would be talking about one or two verses, maybe that they're expatiating upon. Mm -hmm. But to say that this is the modernist interpretation, I don't know. Uh, I'd like to know what the source is. If he's reading a book or if he's hearing someone preach or lecture on the subject, I'd be curious to know exactly what they're saying. But I, I don't know any um, of anything that would lend itself to that interpretation mm -hmm. offhand mm -hmm. in Genesis chapter 12. But I'll certainly take a look and, and revisit this if, if there's something to it. Mm -hmm. uh, all I can say is now this is news to me. <laughs> I've heard that before. But right. you have uh, another another one in hand there, Tom, so that we can uh, well, yeah, one, squeeze I, that I, in here. I know you'll uh, you like this one, Father. It's um, referencing a, a recent program where we, we talked about the uh, Father of Morph and the, the Exorcist, mm -hmm. uh, Exorcist Tells a Tale in that book. And this year says that... Uh, in that program, we mentioned how Father Amor spoke of some people being perfectly possessed, and he wants to know if there are any uh, criteria necessary for that to happen, and he asks if Pope Francis would fit such a profile as being perfectly possessed. Oh, well, uh, I would not be qualified to answer that question myself, um, but... Um, I mean, generally, one sees signs of possession, and those external signs have to do with uh, preternatural events, um, uh, superhuman powers, speaking languages one never learned, uh, channeling other spirits, that kind of thing, you know, uh, levitations and superhuman strength. Even when Francis is slapping some poor woman's hand, I do not see signs of superhuman strength there, right? Uh, so, I mean, I have not seen any, any external evidence of that. Um, but then, you know, I'm, I only see what we see broadcast. So, mm -hmm. but, um, no, uh, perfect. I mean, insofar as we sin and we yield to the devil's suggestions, to that extent, we give the devil a certain control over us, a certain power over us. When we talk about possession, though, we're talking about the influence and the power of Satan taking hold of us in a, in, a, in a certain, what we call extraordinary way, right? Having a certain physical control. When one completely surrenders his will to Satan, completely surrenders his will, then he becomes perfectly possessed. And then Satan can enter in with, without the opposition of the human will, you know, still resisting him. Then nothing is holding him back, uh, except the grace of God alone. But as far as the individual person, there's, there's nothing that the individual is reserving for himself that he will not give to Satan. He gives it all. And so that person is perfectly possessed, and Satan then basically moves in and, and takes control. Now, one can be exercised, but one cannot be exercised as long as he's still, he's still surrendering his will totally to Satan. One has to make that act of the will against Satan and strive, strive to... Uh, resist him, but and because of the possession that becomes, you know, that Satan has physical control of the individual. Um, but the will, Satan can never so complete the will that he devours it, that he takes it entirely away. 
And so a person can change his mind, can be converted, even then, when he's perfectly possessed, and repent and regret that he did what he did, and wants Satan out. But that's the power of exorcism. Um, but no exorcism is going to be successful unless the individual who's possessed wants to be exorcised and wants the devil out. He has to be, as it were, pushing from the inside while the exorcist is pulling from the outside to get Satan out of there. And uh, then, as we saw with the example of uh, what, be what became, um, uh, well, but they made the story of the exorcist, exorcist, the, uh, the exorcist from, okay, that story mm -hmm. came from a young boy, who was actually a Lutheran boy, we have this story, we know the account of what happened there, who was exorcised finally in St. Louis. And uh, the voice that finally came from the boy was neither the voice of Satan, nor was it the voice of the boy. There was a voice in the end when the boy sat bolt upright and a, vo a voice of a command, a real powerful command saying, leave now. Remember that? Mm -hmm. Leave now. It repeated, and with that, Satan had to give way. And the, the understanding is that that was the voice of St. Michael the Archangel speaking through that child. And St. Michael the Archangel was commanding through that child to leave. And Satan could not resist that. Okay? And um, that's why we pray, St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle, right? And by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all evil spirits who wander through the world or prowl through the world seeking the ruin of souls. We see the power of this particular angel for this particular mission that God has for him. So, um, but again, that would not be possible if the, there was a complacency of the human will of that lad to have Satan have possession. He had to want Satan out for the exorcism to be effective. Um, I mean, you know the story behind it. You know how he became possessed, right, with the Ouija board, his aunt, and all the rest. Uh, you know that he was actually baptized as a Catholic and was given Holy Communion even while he was possessed because he needed the strength, he needed that power, he needed the grace from the inside to fight against that malicious power that had seized him. And so there has to be that. So even when one is perfectly possessed, it doesn't mean the devil has taken away all willpower from the individual. Uh, that person can still fight back and uh, with the powers of heaven and the powers of the church here on earth and exorcism through the priesthood can be delivered from that yeah. evil influence. We are witnessing uh, what Father Amorth himself said was a growth in the influence of Satan in the world today. And he says we have to, we have to fight back, we have to resist, we have to, we're, we're kind of, especially in this abortion business, in this abortion evil, we are really confronting evil. We're confronting, we're in the middle of a, like a gigantic exorcism, is what it is. It's like a, a gigantic exorcism. And you see that evil reflected in the voices of the, in the, in the voices and the faces of the abortionists. And now they hate anyone who would stand in their way or who would oppose what they're doing. Yeah, I mean, you're really looking into, into it really is a very much an exorcism. And we just have to keep at it. We have to keep praying. You know, an exorcism does not just, it's not a snap of the finger. It's something you have to continue. You have to continue at, right? You have to, you have to keep 
pounding away on Satan to make him let go. And uh, by the grace of God, we have the power to do that, only by the grace of God. And uh, so we have to do that. The rosary is a very, very powerful weapon for that. We have to um, get people to understand that more and more, that merely showing up in Washington, D.C. and walking down the street and yelling slogans, that may be, be fine politically, it makes a political statement, but believe me, it has no power whatsoever at delivering us from an evil, a satanic evil here. That has to be the power of faith and hope and charity and prayer fueled by charity, inspired by charity. So that's where we have to go with this. We have to take this one to our Blessed Mother. Sure. She has to be that army drawn up in battle array against Satan. Mm -hmm. So we have uh, the weapons we need for victory. Well, Father, we uh, we at least got to mention of Francis's name in there, so I think we're I think we're. Well, Tom, you saved the day, I guess. Uh, <laughs> I think we're officially allowed to close the program I now. Think so. Okay. Thank you, uh, thank you for being here tonight. Thank you for your certainly. insight, and thank you for answering questions and, oh, and everything yeah. else. So, thank you. Yeah. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Finally, to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.